Hi, for those of you I've not met, I'm Nathan, the Senior Minister at Oasis Church Waterloo. I'm sorry I can't be with you in person this morning, but while you're watching this, I'm also preaching in Oasis Church Waterloo. Claire's asked me to talk about this Exploring the Big Topics Together series, and specifically about Penal Substitutionary Atonement Theory, which we'll probably call PSA from now on if we want to try and get out and get some lunch. But before we get to the proper theology, and be warned, there is some proper theology this morning, before we get to that, I'd like to tell you a quick story about the farm that we run in Waterloo. We work with a load of young people and they're generally the kids who are at risk of exclusion from school and we take them to our farm, we do a bit of farming therapy, we teach them behaviour management, character development and I was there a while ago with our farm manager and he had a group of kids in that day and he said, Nath, come and watch this. And he gets these kids over to one of the veg patches that we have. And he says to like the biggest, strongest boy, and he says, hey, grab that green thing there and pull it out of the ground. So the kid grabs the green thing and he pulls it out of the ground. And what comes out is a bunch of carrots. And all of these 16-year-old teenagers, they all jump back and they shout, whoa, because they had absolutely no idea that carrots might grow in the ground. And that's where they come from. You know, these are city kids. They're from central London. As far as they're concerned, carrots come from Morrison's and they get picked up off the shelf there. And that's about as far as it goes. But why is it that it made me think of that story this morning, this topic? Why is it that talking about penal substitutionary atonement theory, PSA, comes to my mind when I started thinking about this talk? It might, I'm sure, seem like a bit of a strange thing to pop into my head at that moment. But the link is that one of the central things about PSA is this idea that Jesus died as an atoning sacrifice for our sins which got me thinking about sacrifice, which got me thinking about crops, which got me thinking about that group of teenagers. I'll explain why. Where does the idea of Jesus being sacrificed for my sins come from? Well, to answer this, we need to start by going even further back in human history. The roots of this go back thousands of years to the times when people didn't have much more idea about how crops grew than those teenage boys did in Waterloo. Back then, your food was whatever grew in the ground in front of you. And how much food you had was determined by whether the weather conditions were right. So if you had the right mix of sun and rain, the crops would grow and you would eat. Eventually, over time, people started to understand this a bit more. They worked out that you needed some sun, but not too much sun. And you needed some rain, but not too much rain. But the problem is that back then there wasn't exactly much understanding about meteorology, how weather systems worked. And people believed that the weather was controlled by the gods. And whether the weather conditions were good or not, and whether crops grew or not, was dependent on how the gods were feeling about them. So over time people started to do things that they thought would make the gods happy. If it had been sunny for a long time and the crops were too dry, they thought the god of the rain was angry with them, so they would start praying to the god of rain. And if it still didn't rain, they'd sacrifice animals to the god of rain. Or if they hadn't had enough sun because it was raining all the time, they thought the god of the sun was angry with them, so they'd sacrifice animals to the sun god instead. So when we get into the period of history that's covered by the Bible, 
at the beginning of the Old Testament. That is where people are in their understanding of God and how God's work. So in this context, I guess it isn't a surprise when we read stories like Leviticus chapter 7, right near the beginning of the Bible, where Moses gives these people laws on how sacrifice should be done to please God. But then we work our way through the Old Testament and we get to the book of Psalms. Psalm 40 verse 6, talking about God, says this, Sacrifice and offering you do not desire. Burnt offering and sin offering you've not required. Hang on. God doesn't desire sacrifice? God doesn't want us to sacrifice things to him? And then we get to the book of Hosea and God says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So what's going on here? Well, in all these verses, God is moving humanity on, moving people on into a better understanding of who God is and what God wants from them. I don't want you to sacrifice things. I desire steadfast love. I'm about love, not killing, life, not death. God is gently nudging humanity forward, encouraging them to let go of their understanding of who God is. And through David, who wrote Psalm 40, and through Hosea, God is encouraging humanity to embrace this new understanding of who God is. And yet, despite this, some people today still see Jesus' crucifixion as God needing a sacrifice to appease God's anger. Why is that? Well, it's because of today's theory, penal substitutionary atonement, or PSA. It's the idea that God just can't forgive sin. God has to punish sin. And God can either punish that sin in you forever in hell, or God can punish that sin in Jesus on the cross. So if you believe that God punished Jesus for you, then you can be saved and get God's forgiveness. God needs the sacrificial blood of Jesus to appease God's anger so me and you can be forgiven. Now, What's interesting is that there are loads of atonement theories, loads of ways of explaining what Jesus' death on the cross meant. But I'm sure that many of us, like me, grew up thinking that penal substitution was the only explanation about what happened on the cross. This idea that God needs the sacrificial blood to appease God's anger so you and me can be forgiven, that was, as far as I was concerned, the only way of looking at it. There was nothing else other than this theory. I wonder if you've seen this tract, Four Points, God Created Me, I Am a Sinner, Jesus Came to Die for Me, and I Need to Pray a Prayer to Thank Jesus for Saving Me, and if I do that, I'll be okay, and I'll get to go to the good place, not the bad place when I die. Or this one, a cross falling over to create a bridge between heaven and earth. In fact, the first time that I came across a different way of looking at this was when I read this book about 20 years ago, well before I lived in London or came to our church in Waterloo. Back in South Wales, I went to a great church which was progressive in its theology before I'd even heard of what progressive theology was. And on a Sunday morning, someone was preaching and said something about how they didn't believe that God had died for our sins in that traditional way. And my mind was blown. Hang on, what, what did he just, did he just say that? Really? Can you say that? And then at the end of the service, we had this theology library at the back of the church. And I got talking to the guy who was organising that and he recommended this book to me. For those of you who don't know, Steve Chalk is my predecessor at Oasis Church Waterloo. He set up Oasis and he spends the last chapter of this book talking about one of the theories about what Jesus' death means. And he drops in a couple of lines about how he didn't agree with PSA. 
Nearly 20 years later, one line from this book still gets regularly shared with me. It's the one people always tell me when I tell people where I work. It's this. The fact is that the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offence that he's not even committed. When I read this book, I had no idea that a couple of hundred miles further down the M4, this book was causing a bit of grief for Steve and for Oasis. There were books written about this book. People complaining about it. You don't want to upset the religious establishment, do you? The Evangelical Alliance put a symposium together. This book, Pierce for Our Transgressions, is 350 pages long. It's just chapter after chapter of theologians saying, Steve Jork is wrong and this is why. There's a theologian called N.T. Wright who said there's only two things wrong with Pierce for Our Transgressions. They don't understand the Old Testament and they don't understand the New Testament. And then what happened after that is that Steve, as a senior minister of Oasis Church Waterloo, he stood up and he preached a sermon which included these words. I have long ceased to regard the atonement as a commercial transaction, nor could I think of the compassion of the Son as appeasing the wrath of the Father. Christ is revealed not as appeasing wrath, but revealing love. Oh, hang on. No, I've got the wrong minister. That last quote wasn't Steve at all. It was this guy, Christopher Newman Hall, preaching in the same church in Waterloo in 1896. I mean, the room looked a bit different. Forty odd years after Newman Hall talked, it was bombed and then rebuilt. But on the same ground that Steve spoke on, the same ground that I'm normally speaking on, 127 years ago, the senior minister stood up and he said he didn't think of the death of Jesus as appeasing the wrath of the Father. So while what Steve said in that book was controversial, it wasn't at all new. In fact, some of these other theories about what happened on the cross are considerably older than the PSA theory. In fact, there's never been one agreed version of what happened on the cross. Over the years, theologians have always had different ideas about this. It's like I'm standing with three other people on this path, looking at this house. A structural surveyor might say, oh, the roof, the chimney, the doors, they look fine. There's no obvious evidence of external damage. Yeah, it looks okay. An architect might look at the same house and say, well, red brickwork, pitched roof. It's a classic 1980s two-story semi-detached house. An estate agent standing next to them might say, well, it's got three bedrooms, a bathroom, looks like it's got a decent-sized garden, well-maintained throughout. I reckon I could sell this pretty quickly. But if I was standing next to them looking at it, I'd say, I don't care about any of that. That's the house I grew up in. Trying to work out what happened on the cross is a bit like that. We're looking at the same thing, but we all see something a bit different in it. Now, penal substitution is one of those theories about what happened. In modern Western Christianity, it's the most popular theory. Although in some other places like Japan, for example, or in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, it's not part of their understanding of Christianity at all. The thing is that not only is penal substitution different to the other major ideas, but I would argue it comes from an entirely different place. To go back to our story about the house, it's like there was a fifth person on the street, but they were actually describing a tree in the garden. So why is it so different from the others? Well, to understand that, we need to understand a bit about where it came from. This is Anselm, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 12th century until he fell out with the king about who the real Pope was. 
The king exiled him, and while he was in exile, he thought he'd take this opportunity to do a bit of writing. So he wrote a book about what he thought Jesus' death meant. Now, Anson said that because God is holy and humans are inherently sinful, Jesus needed to be killed as a substitute because the debt was racked up by humans, so it could only be paid by a human. But no human is perfect, so only a perfect, sinless kind of a God-man can pay the price that we owe to God. So God sends Jesus to earth and he kills him to pay this debt. Now, with all these series, we've got to look at the context. Anselm was writing at the time that the Western legal system was being formed. There weren't judges and juries, there were lords and vassals. If you did something illegal, you had to make it right by sacrificing something to the king. You had to make a payment for your error. Anselm's theory started to gain a bit of prominence. And over the years, a number of other theologians took it on, including this guy, John Calvin, who took this theory and extended it a bit. Calvin said, Jesus pays a penalty on our behalf. And this is the beginning of PSA, penal being the penalty bit here. I mean, there's a big issue here that I haven't got time to go into this morning. And that's the fact that the starting point for Ansem and Calvin was that we all needed to be saved because we are inherently sinful. This is called the doctrine of original sin. Basically, because Adam and Eve ate from the wrong tree in the Garden of Eden, we're all born sinful. But it just doesn't say this in the Bible. That's a theory concocted by a guy called Augustine in the 4th century. Like I said, we haven't got time to get into this, but the Bible starts not with original sin, but with original goodness. God creates us and says they are very good. Here's some verses from the very first book of the Bible. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Now, over the years, though, PSA has become the only show in town in lots of Western churches. It's the only thing we're taught about what happened when Jesus died, isn't it? But there are a load of problems with it. I'm just going to race through three of them this morning. The first one of these three is that everywhere else in the Bible, God tells us to forgive without requiring a sacrifice. There's loads of verses like this. Ephesians 4, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every kind of malice. Be kind and compassionate to each other, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Or Matthew 6, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. And there are loads more examples of this throughout the Bible. So throughout the Bible, God calls us to forgive other people. Yet God can't forgive us without requiring Jesus to die. If that's true, God lives by a worse moral code than God expects us to live by. So I can't see that being the case. We're talking about what happened on the cross. Well, on the cross, even in his weakest moment, and in humanity's worst moment, Jesus still says, forgive them. Even in that moment, it's still forgiveness without punishment for someone else. It's never judgment. And we're meant to believe that God needs to punish someone else on my behalf. I'm not sure about that. Number two, it's a violent God. And it's based on this old idea that violence fixes problems. If this is how the all-wise God solves this ultimate problem, then it just makes sense that Christians should be open to resorting to violence to fix their problems. 
It's not a coincidence that this theory was popularized in the late 11th century, about the same time that the Pope called on Christians to take up arms to recapture Jerusalem from Muslim control, which becomes the beginning of the Crusades. Finally, one more problem with PSA. It makes God's anger the reason for Jesus dying and not God's love. I'm not going to talk too much about this because if I do, I'll probably steal a lot of what Claire might say next week. But what I will say is that people who agree with PSA as a theory, they tend to love a bit of God's anger. This is a guy called Mark Driscoll who used to be a mega church leader in the States and who I think seems to have Jesus confused with William Wallace, Mel Gibson's character from Braveheart sometimes. But when he was still a mega church pastor, and not yet a disgraced ex-megachurch pastor, Mark Driscoll shouted this at his congregation during a sermon. Some of you, God hates you. Some of you, God is sick of you. God hates right now, personally, objectively. He hates some of you. The Bible speaks of God not just hating sin, but sinners. You are the problem, not the solution. You and I are sinners, and by our nature, objects of wrath. God doesn't just hate what you do. He hates who you are. God is an angry God, and that is okay because we deserve it. If you hear nothing else this morning, please hear this. Mark Driscoll was wrong. God categorically does not hate you. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you're doing, God loves you. God does not hate you. Jesus didn't die because God is angry with you. Jesus didn't die because God is angry with me. He didn't die because of my sin, but because of the sins of the people around him. Judas, who sold him out. The Romans, who wanted to shut down a potential revolution. The Jewish leaders, who were more worried about Jesus' popularity than anything else. Pontius Pilate, who could have rescued Jesus, but was too weak to stand up for him. Jesus didn't die because of my sin, but because of the sins of the people who were around him. Remember earlier when I said that this theory is a bit like someone describing the tree instead of the house? That's because penal substitution is the only well-known theory which focuses on God's anger and not God's love. It's the only understanding of the cross which says that Jesus needs to die to appease God's anger. But every time I look at this subject, I keep coming back to some core principles, the absolute fundamentals of my faith. God the Bible says, is love. And when Jesus was asked to sum up all the commandments, he said this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and love your neighbor as yourself. Love, love, love. Not anger, not a blood sacrifice, no requiring death to forgive, but always forgiving out of a heart of love. So as I end, what's the link between Jesus and the sacrificial system? I think Jesus dying on the cross is the once and for all sacrifice that ends the sacrificial system. It's the death that says this is not God's way. I don't think we're saved by a sacrifice. I think we're saved from sacrificing. We're saved from the idea that the answer to bad violence is good violence. God is and forever will be love, love, love. There's one more part of the story. People claiming to be the Messiah at that point were ten a penny. They would rise up against the Romans, claiming to be the saviour, and the Romans would hang them on a cross, and that would be the end of the story. But this story is different, because three days after Jesus went to the cross as the perfect example of God's love, 
He came back to earth as the perfect example of how love is stronger than death, how love is stronger than violence, how in the end, despite all that hate and violence has to throw at this world, in the end, love will win. It might not seem like that today to you. You might be living through a difficult time where all you can see is the Friday, the day of the death. But the resurrection story is that however dark the darkness, hold on, because in the end, love wins an eternal victory. So how do we live in the light of this love? Because I think we all know that just because the cross and resurrection show an eternal victory, that doesn't mean everything's well in the here and now. So how do we live today? I think the death and resurrection of Jesus calls us to live radically and to love radically. I wonder how my life would look if every decision I made was born out of a real desire to live and to love radically. What might that mean for the way I spend my money or my time? How might it change the relationships that I have with my friends, but also with those I struggle with? If I really honestly prioritise trying to live my life as an example of God's love, what would that look like? You know what? I think it would look a bit like sacrifice. I think it might mean that I might sacrifice some of my money, that I sacrifice a bigger house or a car, that I might sacrifice some of my time, that evening when I'm tired and I just like to sit in front of the TV and watch the football. I sacrifice that because I know I really should ring my mate who's struggling with that thing. And that, I think, is a sacrificial system that's worth getting on board with.